0: Welcome to the Gentleman Ultra podcast. We bring nostalgia, history and tales from both within and beyond Calcio's four white lines. This is Italian football through our eyes. This is the Gentleman Ultra.
1: Welcome back to another edition of the Gentleman Ultra podcast. I'm your host, Richard Hall, and this week it's a bit different. This week it's all about Rome. If this was a Roma squad, I'd have an American, an Englishman, and an Italian. So that would be what: Michael Bradley, uh, Ashley Cole, and well, take your pick on the other. Luca,
2: what would your Italian player be? Oh, <laughs> from Roma, sp- from Roma, yeah, I, I got uh, you. Put me on the spot there. <laughs> if I had to pick an Italian from Roma, um, you know what? The the first player that came to mind. Was Damiano Damiano Tommasi? I, I'm not sure why. Maybe right, because the, of his beautiful, beautiful curly locks. The fact um, he wasn't
1: Francesco Totti means you should leave the podcast now. So <laughs> I,
2: I actually didn't want to pick Totti purely to um, for a bit of variation. It was too, it seemed too obvious, but obviously. No, so answer. <laughs> it's a good
1: answer. And of course, we've got Neil Morris. So I can't think of any other Englishman at Roma
0: apart from Ashley Cole. Can you, Neil? No, no. Um, well, in, maybe then instead, I'll, um, you know, on the Roman Liverpool theme, I'll maybe go for then John Arnie reserve. For... <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: it's in the north.
0: The <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, boy played for Rome, so, uh, Roma, so um, that, that'll do for me. And
1: Wayne, uh, Michael Bradley, maybe you can think of someone better for that. I know it's. Uh... It's probably not the best, but it's as near as I could get. Wait. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> so,
3: so Wayne, introduce yourself
1: uh, hey guys, to, so to it,
3: the It's a pleasure to be out here. You know, I, um, I'm i writing for Roma right now. I've been with them for a couple of years, writing as a fan journalist or columnist, so to speak. Uh, I started writing for Gentleman Ultra. I think my first piece was on Makeoli, uh, um, maybe a year or two. Or it was actually Cassano, And That was um, probably about a year and a half to two years ago now. And I always just wanted to write pieces that were so important to me, which gave me motivation. And being able to do it on this platform uh, was just, you know, something I used for my master's thesis was Gentleman Ultra. So being able to become a contributor later on was just uh, was just awesome. Um, but no, really, I, I don't want to relate to Michael Bradley if I can do without that <laughs> for the sake of the podcast. Can I, can I pick somebody else, maybe like Marco Delecchio or De Rossi? You know, somebody who plays with uh, with their heart on their sleeve. So. Uh, they're,
1: they're, they're all good picks, and it's an absolute pleasure to have you on today, Wayne, especially because we are talking about Roma. I think it's pretty obvious why. Uh, we're recording uh, the day after the night before, as they say. Um, Where you know, they nearly did it at the end of the day. They nearly pulled it back. It was um, (laughs) just the two legs were, I mean, absolutely fantastic in many different ways. But, you know, again, controversy. And, you know, I just want to ask you guys, you know, first of all, the game itself, the two legs, what you thought. I'm really interested in comparison of atmosphere, atmospheres of Anfield and in the Stadio Olimpico. But also, I think I have to start it in any true, real Italian fashion. When you read the Italian papers, it started with Inter Juve and the refereeing controversy. Then we had Koulibaly and Napoli and the refereeing controversy. And then last night, I mean, refereeing controversy again? Wayne, I'll start with yourself. Obviously, writing for Roma Press themselves. Can Roma blame
3: the referee? Or is it more that Di Francesco just got it wrong so wrong in the first game? I'm going to say, you know, it's 25% preparation for the match 75% refereeing I was just appalled with how professional referees approach this match I think you could have found found better refereeing in collegiate soccer in the United States it was it was that poor um just really really disappointed you know the first half of the first leg uh, you know Roma definitely lost out and Liverpool could have easily gone three up at that point in the first half but once Roma grew up grew into the game the second half and the second leg I mean, these referee errors—it's just it completely capitulated the the, the leg, and it, it it ruined it. I mean, it's it's very disheartening because I have I was not alive when Roma got last got to the uh, semi semifinals. So this was a this was a very unique experience for me. I've never been through this emotionally that far. That to have something so easy to pick up on fall through the cracks is just completely disheartening. I can definitely see that, you know, look,
1: I think referees in general, this is obviously a very difficult job and we often watch it and look at it and think, you know, in the time and the pressure and, you know, they're all human beings, but there have been some glaring, glaring areas recently that have obviously drawn to the attention. And Luca, if I go to you, same question in a sense, you know, did, was it De Francesco for you lost this in the first leg by probably making a mistake picking that? That, that same format that faced Barcelona that it was no surprise you know and, and not changing it quick enough as well or or again do you think
2: that Le- Roma were just unlucky due to circumstances um, I think there's a lot that can be said about these two games that we'll never be able to completely cover in the time that we've got um, look, I'm, all for, I'm all for I know the Italians as Italians we love conspiracy theories um, and I saw some of the comments from Monkey um, Monchi about, you know, um, Italian football need to open their eyes. Um, this has happened twice now. You know, the call, the dubious call, or in quotation marks, against Juventus as well against Real Madrid, which I actually, by the way, thought, you know, when push comes to shove, <laughs> um, excuse the punt, was a penalty. <laughs> um, but... Um, Look, going to Roma, they were unfortunate, especially in that second half. Um, Dzeko was onside, got brought down by the keeper, could have been a red card for Carrius. That completely changed its complexion of the game in the 50th minute. Um, you know, uh, again, uh, Alexander-Arnold clearly handballed and stopped El Sharawi from scoring. Again, clear penalty. I'm not sure a red card might have been harsh, so I don't think he did it on purpose, but... Um, two, two decisions that certainly if they'd gone Roma's way could have changed the tide and they have every right to feel hard done by in that sense um, and obviously there was that kind of first leg goal I think the third goal in the first leg was potentially offside so look it's, a, it's another argument for introducing VAR um, I'm not sure why um, there's still so much resistance to it yes there's been kind of teething problems in this, and it will get more efficient though, as we use it more I just don't think in these high stakes game, high stake games, we can afford not to have technology like that anymore. Um, but I also am frustrated um, as, a, as a kind of onlooker who was hoping that Roma would do themselves justice. And they did in terms of their spirit and the way they fought the whole way through and, and made this time much closer than it actually should have been when Liverpool were 5-0 up on the first leg. Um, But, yeah, I'm frustrated because Di Francesco did get it wrong in the first leg. There's no other way of looking at that. I mean, he tried to play the same way as he did against Barcelona, which you can understand given the results they got against Barcelona in in that second leg when they won 3-0. But he he had to see that Liverpool at Anfield is a completely different beast to Barcelona at home in the second leg. This is a Barcelona team that, okay, apart from Messi... Um, they haven't got the pace and they don't play with the vibrancy anymore that Liverpool do. And also, it worked well for the first 30 minutes at Anfield, but when Liverpool figured it out, and I think it was when Mane went through and missed that chance, they had to... Di Francesco, that was a warning sign. Then when Salah scores even twice just before half-time, the second half-time, he has to change things at half-time then, because... I know, I, I think I saw De Rossi accusing Liverpool of playing long ball tactics, but, I mean, they're just exploiting the weakness there. If you're going to play a high line and leave space in behind with, with Manet and Salah to run in behind, then what team in the world isn't going to play balls over the top? It it was, I think, just he wasn't reactive enough. It wasn't proactive enough, sorry. And that ultimately did cost Roma as well as, I think Paolo Bandini wrote it in his column the, the the kind of... The frustrating thing is, is they they also shot themselves in the foot in the second leg because obviously Nangolan's mistake. Even the second goal, as Dzeko head tries to clear it, heads it straight to one Alden. So it's a kind of Matt, It's a, you leave you as an onlooker. We were, I was very kind of. It was great to see Roman's fight at the end and, and they they ran Liverpool so close, but you had the feeling that they could have actually done this. You know, they really they really could have done because Liverpool. Um, for all their brilliance in that first leg, seemed almost ready to capitulate, had things gone Mm. slightly differently. That's also down to the referee, but um, I think, you know, leaving that to one side, Roma Roma did shoot themselves in the foot as well, unfortunately. But we've got to remember, as Wayne said, this is their first European semi-final or European Champions League semi-final since um, since 1984. So they're a very unexperienced team. Hey,
1: yeah, I think it is a good point. And, and, and Neil as well, like same sort of question but in a different way that, you know, that taking the Anfield game in particular like to refer to then, you know, Di Francesco, in my opinion, didn't change things quickly enough. Um, yeah. You know, and at one point he did look, not scared, wrong, but almost um, unsure of ideas and what to do. And I think when you saw and heard a lot of players talking to Di Francesco, the interaction between the coach and the players was was something that, you know you don't see very often um, yeah, you confused. know
0: that,
1: um, yeah so what i'm asking is do you think as well i mean i don't buy the fact that when in england some people sort of roma have said that there well, some people said that roma froze with the atmosphere do you think that because i've seen the stadio Olimpico, and i think they're used to that sort of you know mm. you look at the rome derby why what do you think do you think it was the atmosphere do
0: you think it was di francesco or how do you think that played out well, I think firstly, yeah, I mean, the um, like you say about the atmosphere, it is something they used to, but it is very different. I mean, the, uh, the it, it is a bit more intimate and filled. Um, you, you've got people literally in your ear. Um, but it is, is a slightly different atmosphere, but, you know, that shouldn't be something that, that would put the players of that, you know, quality with that experience off. You know, they, they've been all around Italy playing, all around Europe, you know, on, on the, on the run up to the semi-final. Um So, yeah, the atmosphere, you know, probably does affect players slightly, but I don't think that, you know, was the case um, at Anfield in the first leg. I think, um, as you both touched on, Di Francesco got got his tactics wrong. But also, I think um, it has to be said that Jurgen Klopp um, got his tactics wrong on the night as well. And he actually got Di Francesco off the hook because at 5-0, he said, right, that'll do for us. We'll take that to Rome. And he changed... Things at that point in the game, which allowed Roman to get back into it, you know, and get get those last those those late two goals, which made the tie what we saw last night. I think you know, had it stayed five nil, I think if Liverpool had kept pushing at that point, they may have even been able to grab another goal or more. I mean, they, they still looked dangerous, and I think Klopp just thought, you know, we we've got a, you know, I can take a couple of players off now. We can then get the top four wrapped up at the weekend or whatever, and started thinking about other things and um you know when he put Danny Ings on and you know and took Salah off it just completely changed the game in that in that first leg so I think both managers made a mistake obviously Francesco's different Francesco's was slightly you know a bigger mistake because he you know, he just played right into Liverpool's hands into the beginning you know in the beginning of the game and as Lucas said just giving Mane Salah and Firmino that kind of space to operate in you know is just it's you know it's a really dangerous game um so in terms of the, you know, the football, I think, you know, both both managers, you know, probably made decisions, which luckily for us as spectators, you know, gave us what happened last night as well, um, which was absolutely incredible. I mean, to think that, you know, at three points during that tie, Roma were 5-0 down, 6-2 down, 7-3 yeah. down, and still came, um, you know, that close to, to, to taking it to extra time. Um, in terms of the refereeing... Um, I'm with Luca on this in terms of it. It, it boosts the case for VAR. It's, it, it's very easy to just you know, blame the referee for everything. Um, obviously, there's you know questionable decisions being made, um, like the onside. Yeah, it's not the referee's decision. That's the linesman's decision. The referee you know, has taken his word on that. But you know, the VAR you know, able to look at that, it may have been a different outcome. Um, with the um, you know the handball, that the Trent Alexander one. I mean. You watch that in real time, and it's it happens really, really, really quickly. Um, you yeah. know, in, in that case again, it could have gone to VAR to check it out. But um, you know, that's that's a debate that's you know, yeah. going go on, go on a long time. And it's be, it's <laughs> very, very um, but on the flip side, there is a case to say that you know, had it had it not been in the last sort of 30 seconds of the game, would that club and handball still be given? You know, it's quite a soft one. Um, the Liverpool probably could have had a case for a, a penalty shout that could have gone to VAR in the first half. I thought the tackle from Florenzi on Mane was, you know, was quite vicious as well. Um, so there's many decisions in that game that if we had have had VAR, we may have been arguing now whether they they made the right decision or not. Still, you know, it's 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 not the solution, but it may have it helped um, some of those decisions. No, abs-
1: yeah. abs- absolutely. I think. You know, Sorry, I didn't mean to cut across. I, I absolutely agree, and as an Inter fan, I think VAL is fantastic if the referee decides to
2: use it. But yeah. just <laughs> 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 yeah, <The point. laughs> I, I, can I just, I just, I just want to add quickly there that um, I completely understand Wayne's frustration in terms of when referee decisions do go against you because. I mean, I've been in that position, I remember, as a Milan fan, and I think back in 2006 against Barcelona, when Shipchenkis scored a perfectly good goal at the Camp Nou, but it got ruled out for some reason. And Milan went out 1-0 on aggregate, um, Chelsea against Barcelona, as a Chelsea fan, Chelsea against Barcelona in 2009. So, you know, I completely understand Wayne's frustration. And those. And as a Roma fan, you know, you're obviously going to focus on those moments of injustices as, as we tend to see them. But Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it's, it's, usually, it's normal.
1: That's, that's it. And I, you know, listen, it, I, it's just exactly the sort of point I was making in a sense that you do on the weekend, you know, I, I'm not going to harp on about that because it's gone, but, you know, it's, and it wasn't as big a deal for, for Inter against UV and uh, that summer. special. It was, it was for Wayne in, in Rome there. And, you know, you do focus on those things because it matters and it's, our things are, are going to go right. But just moving on a little bit, I, I I'm interested because, when you look at, I, obviously, the whole point of this, this site started about the atmospheres in Italian football and going out there and, and watching the games, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, we've talked about in previous podcasts, but that, that sort of atmosphere um, was always intrigued me, and I, I always found myself um, wandering out to Italy and away from English football, partly because of what I thought English football had become, but partly because, it basically, because of the atmosphere and stuff you don't get over here. You're right, Neil. When you mentioned before the atmosphere is contrast, I just want to know what you guys think about that. And anyone can take the lead on this, you know, in the sense of when the atmospheres in England a few and far between, getting nights like Anfield, but then the Stadio Olimpico, and in Italy, sometimes for me, you get a very different type of atmosphere. You know, you can have that; it's more intense. There is a huge difference for me in, in the way it is. But what do you think? I mean, do you think that the uh, the Players are intimidated by these atmospheres or do they just get on with it? And how would you see the difference
3: between the two, in your opinion, guys? Uh, I, I think definitely that there's a big difference between what's being consumed. And in Italy, it's espresso, mostly. It's caffeine. But in England, I think alcohol plays a bigger part. And that, that leads into two different types of violence. But in the end, they all have their same manifestation. Um but in, in England, you know, in, if I can give a England, an American's perspective on this, when mm. when it's here, when it's on NBC or Fox, whatever channel they put it on, they have to almost raise the sound to make it look like it's lively. When they put it on in Network here, when they put the Italian League on, they take away the noise of the stadium. So, do you, you, you kind of see where I'm heading with this? They have yeah. to they have to make it seem like it's not so crazy in Italy, like it's yeah, know, it's somewhat. Uh, Wayne, I was watching. Uh, I was watching the
0: game last night on um, BN Sports to Spain, and for the first, um, sort of, you know, during the build-up, in you know, even quite probably you know, half an hour or more before the game, uh, the, the commentators in the, in the press box, um, uh, you know, were, were talking about the game, and I, you know, I, I was really struggling to hear them, and I think, you know, after a while they adjusted the sound levels so we could actually hear what they were saying. Um, this was on uh, being sports in Spania and uh, you know even before the stadium was full they were struggling to be heard in the studio you know the, the noise last night like you said but yeah I think you know I think I discussed it with uh, Luca a uh, couple of days ago we, we were talking about it. how in some ways it feels more more uh, say hostile in Italy you know it's a real it's, you know not an anger but you feel kind of like the hostility um, whereas in England, it's more, uh, you know, uh, I don't, hard to describe really. It is, it, it is a different thing. It's, it, there's an intensity at Anfield, but you, you don't feel the kind of same kind of hostility that you feel maybe from that, that Italian, you know, ultra crowd when they're in full swing.
1: Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think that you know, in a lot of ways, I don't if you have touched on this before, but yeah, you can go to the, you go to. I use the Emirates because you know I've frequented there quite a lot in the past, and you can go to a full emirates for a league game unless I'll use one an example of my own against Stoke you know a couple of years back and you go and it's almost like loads of people are there for a day out you know they've, they've done the whole experience the club shop you know there's a lot of um, a lot of tourists et cetera which is nothing wrong with that it's great you know but everyone's come for the whole experience everyone's bought food, etc et etc cetera, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. You go but it's a nice environment. It's great. It's a, it's a great everything's fantastic. You can't fault it, but it's deadly quiet from kickoff. And it is it is a quiet, it's much more apathetic in some respects. Whereas you flip it to say, interverse is Brescia, you cold November day. Even walking up to a the stadium, there's only twenty five twenty thousand people or thirty thousand people in, in Siro. And yet it feels like it's just impending. there's a sense of it, a real sense of What's going to happen almost? And there is a real difference too. But not all days are like that in Italy. But there is, there is always that, just that slight edge. I mean,
3: what do you think, Luca? Am I getting that wrong? Or? No, and they don't head to the fan shop. They don't head nah. to the restaurants before. That's a strictly go to the stadium, enjoy the match. Uh, you know, there's no there's no big, nice renovated bar over mm. or, or pub overlooking the field. That's a completely different experience because I work for Red Bull uh, in New Jersey and we make such an emphasis on the fan zone before the match. But and, and in England, like it's what you're saying, you go you go to the you go to the uh, the the club store or um, the, the local pub next to it or whatever it is, you know, whatever the club promotes mm. there. But in Italy, it is strictly about the match. And yeah, it, these are fascist stadiums. They don't even have that infrastructure in them to allow that. No, it's, it's a good point. I mean, Lucia, you've been to Vicenza. I mean, that must have a bit of a,
1: an edge.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, the Romeo Menti. Uh, it's the main difference is probably, I think, me, as Neil said, we, me and him, we spoke about it the other day. English football has gradually become sanitized. In terms of the atmospheres and I guess the volatility of the matchday experiences, it seems not in every case um, because you still have some great atmospheres across Premier League, like Crystal Mm. Palace, for example, um, and Anfield on European nights. And these, especially these stadiums, they're very kind of claustrophobic. The crowd is basically right upon the players, and so they can create quite an atmosphere. But the match day experience is to an extent manufactured even on European nights. You know, you look at somewhere like Man City in the Etihad, it's all manufactured, the flags that they wave beforehand. There's no sort of volatility or um, um, spontaneity, Mm. is the word that I was looking for, to the crowds. Whereas in Italy, you have that volatility, you do have that spontaneity. Unfortunately, as you said, Richard, the, the experience isn't as pleasant in terms of the stadiums especially for example yeah. to vicenza are crumbling around you literally uh, the toilets are horrible the facilities are below par and um, to put it kindly sometimes it is a very kind of uh, rustic um, experience it brings you back to kind of i guess people who watch football in the 80s and 90s if, if you enjoy that experience Italy you still you can still get that experience at, at most clubs to be honest especially um, absolutely it's um, just inter- sorry, and, you on, yeah. sorry no yeah no that, that, that's I would say is the main which is why obviously in Italy you can have much smaller crowds um, but the atmosphere still seems louder more vociferous slightly more hostile in terms of the kind of greeting that away fans um will will get and and then obviously you have less although the italian authorities have tried to to try and legislate and control the use of pyro the use of drums in the past etc um you know they don't do a great job to be honest Uh, and and that adds to the atmosphere in italy no end, of course, but, but you don't really have that. And in, in, um, in, interesting, I think there is an, in, an effort now from certain fan groups, and you've got obviously the Safe Standing initiative, and um, to restore some of the atmosphere at English clubs. And you've even got some of these groups calling themselves ultras now. So there's definitely an attempt to bring something, or bring. Some there is and and
1: the one thing I would say, and this goes into one of the main points what we want to talk about today: is that, that you know, you're right, and it's you, it's the experience you want, and what you want to have um, now. I've been going over there for X amount of years, over a decade, and you know I've enjoyed that experience. That's my choice, and that's what I want to do, to see Italy in that manner, and, and there's a lot of, of good around that. But you know, for anyone who's listened to this podcast, um, and especially after what the, the last couple of weeks, uh, the 92 fixtures with Liverpool and Roma played out, Italian football hasn't helped itself in some respects because the vision of what the ultra is is now reinstated on people's brains in the, in the UK because of the tragic incident with Sean Cox, And I think the problem is now that, you know, that there's um, a lot written about these situations when it happens. Um, and a lot of what was reported in a lot of different media facets and outlets, shall I say, um, paints, as a lot happens in society in a lot of ways, paints the ultras all... You know, under one under one brush. And, you know, what happened on that night was absolutely completely, utterly inexcusable. But, you know, in my, in my time there, I is. Yes. You go to any football game, you know, you're going to have some some sort of trouble at some point in some times. Um, but it's not. <laughs> it's only football has changed so much, just like English football has changed so much since the 80s. But now I think we have this image of, of how football is. And I think what's more dangerous in some respects, especially when there's a return leg, which fortunately, you know, there's no major reported trouble as such. It creates an atmosphere and an image that can be then misconstrued and, and built into feelings of resentment, misunderstanding and revenge. And you guys wrote a piece between you and I really just want you to ask to talk about this because it, I'm going to, you in fact, Luke, can you tell me why it came about? It's a culture of violence, uh, how political and social turmoil gave ri- ro- rise to Rome's radical cultures. And just, ex- I mean, explain why you guys wrote this. Yeah,
2: sure. So the main thought behind it was obviously after the incidents at Anfield which left the Liverpool supporter Sean Cox um, in critical condition and I think he remains that way so obviously before uh, we start any any discussion on our thoughts yeah, go out to Sean Cox and his family and we, we, we posted that on Twitter um, we obviously read a lot about, um, about Roma's ultras, um, about the violence that was witnessed at Anfield and then obviously from that you have um, People retelling the stories of previous incidents of violence, which have involved Roma's ultras, and unfortunately, it does paint quite an ugly picture. Um, especially um, when English fans come to town. So, as you said, a lot had been, a lot was being written. Um, you know, not all of it necessarily inaccurate or bad or, um, journalism, but certainly some of it was tending to sensationalise and generalise. Um, in terms of how they were depicting Roma's fan base. And so we wanted to bring a more nuanced uh, understanding to the phenomenon. Um, and so that was the thought process behind the article. Um, and so, yeah, me, myself, Neil and, and Wayne um, collaborated on this. I wrote about the kind of social, socio-political origins of the ultra movement itself in Italy. Uh, Wayne about the history of Roma's ultras and, and Neil about the kind of the, the dynamic with English fans and the tensions there have been uh, with English fans. But we, we just wanted to try and build an understanding of this phenomenon, not sensationalised, neither legitimise it because don't, don't get anything twisted here. Um, any sort of violence which threatens the safety and health of other fans is completely um, unacceptable and aberrant behavior,
1: but that was the thought process behind behind. Them. So so Wayne, tell tell me a little bit about, you know, why you got involved in this article and, and just, you know, the, your perspective on this and
3: why this is part of your party's collaboration in a sense. Sure. I did my master, my master thesis on basically the politicalization and the culture behind Roma. And with that you have to include one Mussolini to neo-fascism, because that's what gives rise to a lot of these ultras and their clubs. Now, the caveat there is Fedain. Now, the person who hurt Sean Cox, um, and he could have been from any group, but he was from Fedain, and their history is really interesting because they're ultra-left wing. They were, um, it's the second biggest raid in Italy under Nazi occupation, I think roughly 700 to 900 men who are sent to the extermination camps never come back, uh, and my, my motivation behind that just came from being almost uh, in shock of this, because in the United States, fascism is a big no-no. Like You cannot be communist, you cannot be fascist. There's, there's no toleration of any of that, uh, but when you look at Italy, you see the lines are more blurred because of the colonial history. Italy does not become a country until the 1860s, um, 1871, and By that point, the colonial world has already been divided up. The pie has already been carved out by Spain, England, France, Portugal, and partially the Netherlands. So you you see why a country does these things and why these extreme opinions arise. And it was something that wasn't covered in English. So that's how I started to do my my research. I followed – the the past two years, starting two thousand fifteen, when the ultras stopped coming to the stadium altogether, and when uh, Luca approached me for this article, I said, "Yeah, one hundred percent, we got to do it. We have to make some clarity here, you know, right now." So, uh, from an outsider point of view, I mean,
1: obviously, you know, if I'm if I'm if I'm going to read this article, and I'm, for instance, a Liverpool fan, fan of any any team actually, maybe I'm going to the game last night, and I read this and listen to what you guys have said, you know, why? So surely then the ultras, this, this is an issue. This is an ongoing issue, is it? Is this something that is, you know, uh, you're talking about the, the fascist elements, the left-wing elements. Neil, explain to um, an outsider, if you would, if you take me as that for today, that why would I then have any better opinion of the ultras? And why, so uh, tell me about the motivations, tell me about the differences, just
0: explain to me. Yeah, well, I mean, Firstly, you've got to point out the fact that what happened, you know, as we've ever think, you know, we're, what we're dealing with here in the context of the article, we're talking about a stadium full of last night, for instance, 55,000 plus Roma supporters. And then, you know, the incident that, that gave, gave rise to this article involved two guys, maybe a, a bunch of maybe 10, 20 guys um, who attacked an individual. Um, so it is still a very, very small minority. Um, you now from what I understand of, of the ultras today I mean, it is a you know a much smaller group than it would have been in the past um, now I wrote an article funnily enough you know just before all this happened um, before the, the first leg about you know Liverpool's trip to Rome in 1984 um, and you know after that game it, it wasn't just a couple of guys caught in trouble it was you know uh, huge huge numbers um, and so uh, the ultra problem, you know, was was much bigger back then. Um, what we're dealing with now is probably some echoes of that past where you've still got certain elements that are carrying that on. Um, you know, it does get passed down through the generations, but it is, you know, it is becoming a smaller, smaller minority. Um, and, you know, I think let's look at what happened last night. You know, um, we had on the Sud last night, we had signs... Roma fans, um, you know, in, about Alfie Evans, the, the the lad that died in uh, the child that died in Liverpool. Um, you know, uh, tributes to him. Um, we had a delegation of Roma fans who met up with a delegation from Liverpool fans in the city, to sh- you know, as a, a sign of unity. Um, we had the city of Rome presenting a, a, a medal um, and some memorabilia, a copy of a motion condemning violence, which they gave to a. I think it was the guys from the uh, Anfield Rap podcast to take back to Sean Cox's family. Um, you know, and then on top of that, um, probably the you know the, the most significant thing of all, um, we had the authorities taking the situation seriously as well. So we had probably the best you know organised match at the stadium in a European game for, for many 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 years, and certainly compared to how it was organised in the eighties. You know, we had. Um, proper organisation, meeting points for the away fans to get shuttled to the stadium. They were brought in early. They were kept in for a couple of hours afterwards. They were, you yeah. know, and then they had um, shuttle buses and taxis taking them back. You know, everyone took it seriously and this guy got hurt and it wasn't just a case of, oh, it's, you know, it's hooligan. They're not going to bother doing anything about it. Everyone from the clubs, the, the authorities, no. the police, everyone took it seriously. Um, the players, the fans, you know, all... Showed unity last night, and I think you know watching both teams get applauded off the pitch as well. Um, it was a completely different atmosphere. It, you know, there wasn't the sense of you know the revenge that there was in 1984. Um, you know, and, and, and there was a lot of you know big feeling of injustice last night with the, the decisions and stuff like that, as, as Wayne mentioned. So, um, it, if you're if you're an away fan, um, you know, heading out there is a very different situation. to
1: yeah, absolutely. I think I think that's a really good point. A lot more than one good point there about the fact of you know the way that it could have been a, a tinderbox there from some of the decisions that were made, and um, and also the the support that that the ultras you know showed in some respects. I mean, Luca, do you think there's an importance of the way this is reported? Because i you know, in fairness, as much as as much as I would, you know, I mean. <sighs> go out there and spend time on the Curva Nord the Inter, for instance. You know, there is a part of me when I see this that, that makes you think it's a big price to pay for an atmosphere. But then on the on you know, on the flip side, I know that in all my time I've never seen any any violence I have in English football. And I was I actually will say I was lucky enough to interview Franco Caravalti, one of the, the head of the uh Curve Nord, Curve Nord in Inter. And he, his point was that, look, if you have 6,000 people all together, 10,000 people, you will always get a group of idiots. Now, idiots isn't a strong enough word for the, those people, so I'm not exactly using that term and use something a lot stronger. And it is a difficult situation because for people who may be very used to the English way of supporting football, for others, even like myself and you guys who you know the Italian sort of way, what responsibility do you think that the press have to, in the way that they report this?
2: Yeah, I think we do have a big responsibility as onlookers to try not to escalate tensions first and foremost. Because, uh, for example, in 1984, I think Neil wrote about how the Italian press before the game wrote about a whole kind of bar- the, bar- the English barbarians arriving, five thousand English barbarians arriving, which immediately escalates tensions, which immediately puts Roma fans on edge as well. Um, and likewise, the English press um, may be going a little overboard in terms of making some sweeping generalisations um, about the kind of Roma fan base or all, all ultras, um, because not every ultra, ultra believes in using violence or, or believes in the culture of violence. As, as a fan pointed out to us actually on Twitter after our article, um, you know said to us I'm an ultra myself I've never ever engaged in violence my my primary concern is to support the team and that's for for the ultras it, it, it literally that's what the word the etymology of the word kind of um denotes is that this is this kind of extreme support going beyond uh what the normal fan would do in terms of organizing the choreographies and the atmosphere um so we do have to be careful, and I think that's why we wanted to at least bring some context and understanding of, yes, there's a culture of violence, you cannot detach that from culture, And, and yes, we are talking about more than a couple of um, morons, I think that's what James Plotter, the Roma president, called these two fans who've been, who've been um, I think, charged now um, with, with the attacks on Sean Cox. Um, but as I pointed out in the article, it is more than just a couple of morons or mindless hooligans. You know, these are some groups who have been radicalised because of uh, the history of Italian politics in the 1960s and 70s and the history of Italian society, um, which spilled over into football. Um, You know, as John Foote in his book, Coucho, writes, the idea that you can separate Italian politics and Italian football is laughable. You'll never be able to do it. Um, so these um, radical ideologies and, and the violence that, um, that kind of was constant throughout Italian society during those years, the years of lead, they're called, uh, um, in, uh, which were social and political turmoil, where the, the Italian populace lost trust in, in the government at that point. And you had these paramilitary groups of left wing and right wing found their way into the stadiums. And that's, and as I think Wayne O'Neill said, the legacy of that has continued. You know, this is passed down the generation and these groups that exist, Fedeine, um, were formed in the 1970s. So who were, who were left wing. Um, Boys Roma, who are neo-fascists, are still around. I saw their banner yesterday in the they are. They were formed in the 1970s. So this is where it's coming from. The only thing that I would say, um, my last point on this, because we could talk about it all, all day. My last point on this is there are parallels. Um, if you want to talk about the why violence is still reoccurring, I didn't touch upon this in the article. But you can draw parallels between how there is a lack of trust in the Italian political establishment today. And there was, or there has been throughout history, but there was a severe lack of trust in the Italian establishment in the 1970s, um, where the Italian state completely lost all of its legitimacy and as Wayne wrote then in the 1990s with the Topoli scandal. Um, and again, today, you've got a state of flux in Italian politics where the Italian parties can't even form a government at the moment. Um, and populist parties like the Five Star Movement and Lega Nord, or just the Nord now, uh, sorry, Legas, um, they, they, they're not a separate um, northern party anymore, but they are a populist party. Um, are the most popular parties in Italy and they're, they're espousing quite radical views so is it again any surprise that we see some of this radicalism um, being manifested within Would you, Italian football? Would you say in this? some respects that's similar to
1: the you know left and right influence and the instability in the UK in the 70s and 80s Did you say it's a similar sort of link? Obviously it's much deeper in, you know, with what you're saying but or do you think there's any link there in the sense of the way that now in the UK we don't have that as such Um, so Uh,
2: no it's definitely an interesting parallel that you've drawn now I think that you definitely can't take away the social context from you know the the rise of hooliganism in England and during the Thatcher era especially as well Um, and the political instability for sure there's parallels there and as you said it's not same sort of instability um, that we perhaps see in Italy today as, as there is in the UK. Uh, there's also, I think, the reason that it, this culture of violence has, has been able to survive in Italy is there is, I think someone again on Twitter um, pointed out a or asked about the lack of willingness on the part of the state or the authorities to really, truly make a concerted effort to kick this element out of of of, um, Italian football as a whole. Now, they might make a concerted effort to kick it out of the stadiums, Mm. actually in the stadiums, but violence that happens outside the stadiums can be chalked off as political violence, but it might be perpetrated by Italian football fans. So you've still got, or or ultras, you've still got the problem there. Um, And obviously this, I think my point on Twitter was, while the Italian authorities in the Italian state continue to see this as solely football's problem, solely Italian football's problem, the, the, then you'll never get rid of that culture because Italian football it is merely mirroring wider society issues and wider society. So you, you have to tackle it as a, in a more holistic way rather than just saying, well, the onus is on Italian football to, to deal with these ultras. Um, and we've seen that there's not always, they have such power within these clubs. That it's difficult for the clubs to deal with them. I mean, especially the more radical elements. So that would be my last kind of point about the issue. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the positive elements of ultra. Yes,
1: I think it's probably best. And Wayne, do you want the the last word on on that on the on the piece?
3: So Luca, how much do you think that this ultra's and political spectrum? How much of it is just? Young adults who are males who just want to go out and fight or angry because they don't have jobs, angry that their parents are divorced, angry that their girlfriend broke up with them. How much of it is just that you think?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't, uh, it's a uh, hard one to answer in terms of quantitatively. I'm not sure to, to what extent you've got I... groups of, yeah, just frustrated youths. I, I, I get the, I the could, question. Uh, I think uh, what you can look at... Can no, I'm sorry. sorry yeah.
1: I've, I've, I've come to me after you finish because I, I've got a point on that.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, all I'll say is that definitely there's an element of that. And there is a word in Italian, one of the ultras used, um, uh, a, a term, cani um, sciolti, which literally means kind of wild dogs. And they refer to these groups who form tend to be younger uh, splinter groups within fan bases who don't stick to the code, if you like, because you know in this world of the ultras, they'll have a code um, which everyone should follow, uh, but they go off and do their own thing and usually are seen as the troublemakers, the guys who go off looking for trouble um, and who don't abide by these kind of codes of conduct, if you like, uh, as ludicrous as that sounds. Um, they do have them, so uh, there's certainly an element of that. That it's not just politically motivated violence. Um, there is an element of young Italians who, um, for lack of a better idea, because of their own um, social problems, uh, lack of an identity, a lack of feeling of belonging, um, disillusionment with the establishment, disillusionment with with the way the economy is going, um, and as you said. Uh, they, they they vent their frustrations and, and I guess take their anger out at football and that was the same um, with, you know, the kind of um, problem of hooliganism in the UK. You heard a lot of people talking about how these groups, these firms or groups of football fans gave them an identity, a sense of belonging. Um, so I think, yeah, definitely that can't be dismissed. And then there is isn't on, on that point, um,
1: and I'm taking into it, I mean, uh, one I can talk about probably here. I always, <laughs> the boys' hand sits directly slap bang in the centre of the cover Nord. The Vikings and the boys' are the two main groups that, you know, organise majority of the rest of it and they have their lieutenants to organise all the chants and everything that goes across the top. You go in there and it's, you're talking about them policing themselves and they do. I remember one of my friends when, um, going back to 2006 and when, I think it was Michael scored, they everybody my friend got pushed down a couple of flights of steps. Oh, intentionally! I don't think everyone was ready for how it works. He wasn't, and straight away they turned around and they put him back and got him a drink and they're apologetic and they went and put, should we say police themselves? No violence, just said to this other guy, "Look, you got to be careful." So there is that, and also an element to it is that these guys. What What surprised me was I, I actually was stupid enough, crazy enough to take my wife into the Kura Nord. Uh, she is still my wife. So that's so lucky. <laughs> and I thought I'm not going to go in the main area because it's raucous. The flares mostly go off in the central areas um, at times, and it is pretty full on. So we were on the outskirts of the Covenord, right on the left-hand side, and it's the worst experience ever. Because, as Luke is mentioning, you know these these groups of uh, of youths, young lads. There's drugs on there. There's a lot of um, a lot of them smoking weed. They're drinking more. They're drinking amounts about sambuki the, the smell is weird of everything mixed together and and, they are and they're raucous and they're trying to pretend fight uh they don't fight actually but there's a lot of pushing and shoving it's uh like almost peacocking in a sense and they're trying to impress the older guys uh and that part of it is is really different because the responsibility and the attitude of the the main groups a lot of these guys as i've said before they might be lawyers teachers Economists, You know, one of them was like really high up in a very major car firm, you know, that is like serious head office. And they're just coming out to let a bit of not frustration, but just to enjoy it in a different way. That's how they like to enjoy their football. Um, they would always have. And for me, it's the, the younger groups um, that talked on another episode about the Bologna. I'm not going to go back into it cause it's on a couple of uh, episodes ago. And when they were causing trouble with the police, they were the younger ones. And I think there is that now. And I think it links into what Luca was talking about with the Italian political situation, economic social situation, that maybe it is, um, you know, young lads primarily looking back to a different era and trying to find a sense of belonging and and looking at it like that. But it it is a really, really good point. But can I just ask a question to Neil actually, just totally um, thinking about this before, we always talk about it from a UK perspective of how we they, we see the uh, Italian ultras, and we often talk about how the Italians will we have done today see, see the English and the differences. Spain loves its football; mm-hmm. it, um, it supports its football well. I'm really interested, from especially if it's focused on this Liverpool Roma fixture. What was the take on everything in Spain?
0: All <laughs> right. Um, well, it, it kind of. Um... It didn't get much attention, really. I mean, it was more about the football. Um, there were, you know, there were articles about the, the incident that happened. Um, you know, but because it was a, a minority um, and, and it wasn't wide-scale violence, it didn't get the major coverage that it would if it had happened, you know, say, in Spain. Um, so, you know, and I think, you know, it didn't have the kind of sensationalism that obviously the UK press latched onto it because it happened there on the doorstep. Um, to Spain it was just covered a bit more as a news story rather than you know trying to blow it up into some you know massive, massive deal and of course Spain didn't have a, a team about to go to to Rome for the second leg you know and, and all the tension and all the talk of you know a, a thousand hooligans coming over and that kind of thing so it, it just kind of got reported uh, in, a, in a normal way without all the sensationalism so you could kind of read what happened um you know, and, 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 and from reading it, you didn't get the idea that it was, you know, a, a massive deal or a massive problem with the Italian ultras. It was just a couple of, you know, mindless um, idiots mm. acting in a completely despicable way, um, and they've been arrested for it. So, uh, and I think, um, you know, the the, uh, the Barcelona um, trip to Roma you know, went pretty smoothly as well. So I think There was um, mm. much in the way of trouble at all, and you know, there wasn't any history there or because you know, th- it was Liverpool and because it was Roma there was so much you know like we said earlier context is everything and mm. just that thing has so much context you know because of 1984 you know, Liverpool won their first European Cup in the Stadio Olimpico in 1977 they won their fourth one there in 1984 you know, and as far as Roma concerned <laughs> you know, pull it off them <laughs> so we, yeah, Liverpool have been there won, it tw- won the Cup twice there um, you know they had the what happened the 84 there so the, the whole context got I think it got blown into something in other countries
1: That's interesting I mean you said that there was no um, real concern when you know the, the Barcelona fans went over to Rome um, obviously no more than any other game do you think there'll be any concern when Madrid goes to face the Liverpool fans or do you think it will be with the same this is just another football game only as a final
0: yeah, it should be um, you know just another uh, just another football game. Um, uh, you know, Liverpool and Real Madrid do have some history with the with the 1981 final. Um, but I mean, the difference there is you know since 1984, Rome haven't you know Roma haven't been in a final since 1981. I think Real Madrid may have won one or two you know, mm, European Cups. Maybe I, can't, I personally can't remember. I don't, I don't think there's that kind of feeling of a uh, you know oh no it's Liverpool we need to get revenge. Mm. I think it's just you know they've met a few times before um, you know up until up until recently Real Madrid had never beaten Liverpool I think it was only in you know a couple of years ago when um, when Brendan Rodgers got into the Champions League and they had you know, a couple of games against Real Madrid and lost them lost them both then um, um, you know prior to that under Rafa right. Benitez they met them. not going to be that tension and, and, and drama, type, but this one. Um, and I, I, you know I think there would have been some of that with this picture, even without what happened Handfield, just because of Yeah. just you know, um, it. Um, but you know on, on the point of this, I think you know, from my point of view, I mean we're we're a walks and all site, so we you know we like to. last night how everyone
1: Absolutely, absolutely. No, it's really well said. I think you know it is that point of being able, as a site, to, as you say, a Watson site. We will, oh, well, I said, you know, looking at that dark underbelly of Italian football, we rose into glasses, and I think that's what we've been trying to do today. Is not for one minute um you know just as much we're not trying to to glamorize anything which we certainly wouldn't do we certainly you know we want people to be able to go to, to understand that they can still go to italy enjoy the city enjoy enjoy the city they're going to the culture and the football because at the end of the day you know we've got to put these things into context as best we can and uh, and on that
3: note can we say goodbye to wayne thank you very much but can you tell the guys where to get hold of you Thank you guys very much. Uh, you can reach me, Wayne in Rome, like when in Rome, but just Wayne, uh, on Twitter. Uh, I have also my stuff on ResearchGate. If you ever wanted to use it for like scholarly citations, my master's thesis, if you're doing something on football and sociology or politics, um, on Twitter, you can always reach me via direct message. They're not closed. Uh, on Facebook and if you know, for some reason, whatever, however you need to get in touch with me, you know, feel free, very open. And I'll, I respond all the time. So, you know, I'm very available to help. I also, I would always like to thank Neil and Luca
1: for your insight. As always, we'll be back soon with another episode, probably in a couple of weeks. So can I just say thank you for everyone, to everyone and, um, and goodbye for now. Ciao.